This is the word of the Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not, not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we praise you and we think of the wonder of your word coming down to us that written over so many centuries in such different cultures and different languages and by different people, and yet your Holy Spirit governing the whole thing, that the book that has been passed down to us has such a coherence to it. It tells a unified story of your creation, your providence, and your redemptive works in the world. And so, Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds that we would Behold the wonders in your word and that your word would uh, call us to faith and to obedience and to worship. And so, Lord, we open our hearts to you and we ask that you'd be our teacher now. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we are beginning now the Passion narrative about Jesus' uh, arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. And as I was studying this passage, these, verse, these verses, um, I realized that they really give a profound summary of the central message of the Bible. And actually, just a few chapters ago, uh, Jesus was talking to his disciples and said to them that he was promised to give them the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth. And then he said this, and the Spirit will declare to them the things that are to come. What does that mean, the things that are to come? Well, it turns out that same word is repeated in our passage here in verse 4. You see where it says, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. 
It's the same thing. And what was going to happen to Jesus? Well, he was going to die on the cross. He was going to be raised from the dead. He'll ascend into heaven. He would give the Spirit to his disciples. And so the things that are to come that the Holy Spirit teaches us about is primarily about Jesus and his death and his resurrection and the giving of the Spirit and his lordship and how that applies to all of our life. And so this is the main message of the Bible. Now, we are uh, right in the middle of Lent. Lent is the, the season from Ash Wednesday to, to Good Friday when uh, the church has historically taken time for fasting and particularly reflection on the sufferings of Jesus on our behalf. And so it's perfect that now until Easter, we'll be looking at the, the narrative of Jesus' arrest and, and his trial and, and into his crucifixion uh, culminating in Easter in, in April. So uh, today, what I would like to do as we look at, at John, this passage of John 18, I just want to answer three simple questions about, about the main message of the Bible, and this is what they are. Who is Jesus? What is wrong with us? And how can he heal us? Who is Jesus? What is wrong with us? And how can he heal us? And I think these questions really summarize in a powerful way, really, the meaning of the Bible as a whole. And so three questions this morning from John 18. The first is this. Who is Jesus? And you can see that question is important in this passage when Judas arrives at the garden with this mob of soldiers and religious leaders who are going to arrest Jesus. Jesus initiates the conversation with them. And you see in verse 4 it says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And that question, whom do you seek, is actually repeated in the beginning of the Gospel of John. The first two disciples that follow Jesus are Andrew and John. They were following John the Baptist. And then they start following Jesus. And, you know, they're following behind him literally. And he turns around to them and he looks at them and he says, whom do you seek? It's like, well, it's probing existential question, whom do you seek? And then at the end of the gospel, in, uh, there's a gar another garden where uh, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and there's an empty tomb and Jesus has been raised from the dead and he meets her and he says, whom do you seek? And it's as if John is tying together through the whole, the whole gospel that this is the deepest existential question we all have. What are you seeking in life? What is the most important thing to you? Who are you seeking in your life? And I, it's amazing in this passage that twice, even this mob that's coming to arrest Jesus says that who they are seeking is Jesus of Nazareth. And so who is Jesus of Nazareth? And why is he the answer to our deepest questions? And so I want to give a couple answers to that. Okay, so who is, who is Jesus? First, Jesus is the true human. Jesus is the true human. And you see that in the setting of this whole scene. In verse 1 there, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And if you, uh, if you know the Bible, uh, a mention of a garden will be deeply evocative to you. It brings you back to the very beginning of the Bible when our first parents were created in God's image and God placed them in a garden. And of course, they sinned against God and they were expelled from the garden and from God's presence. And the story of the Bible is really about how do we get back into the garden? And so here is Jesus leading his disciples 
re-entering, entering into the garden. And what the Bible tells us in other places is um, that Jesus is in fact the second Adam. It's like Jesus is starting a new humanity. Adam and Eve started the first humanity, and now Jesus is starting a new humanity with his bride, the church. And uh, Romans 5 compares the first Adam, Jesus, or the first Adam to the second Adam, who is Jesus. This is what it says. For by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the second Adam, the many will be made righteous. And what Romans tells us is that something has gone wrong with being human, and Jesus has come to set it right. I think, you know, so many of us have a sense that humanity is this beautiful thing that something is broken about. And so many of us in our culture are constantly telling ourselves, you are, you know, talented. You are beautiful. You are powerful. You are unique. And it's like we're trying to convince ourselves, tell ourselves that over and over again. And it's like, why are we yelling that so loud at ourselves? It's because on the one hand, we know that there is something beautiful about humanity, but we sense deeply that something is broken and not working. It's not working how we're supposed to work. And the Bible's answer is that this is because of our sin and that we have been expelled from the garden from God's presence. And the only way that wholeness can be returned to us is through Jesus, who is the true human. He's the second Adam. And if you don't believe that, if you don't believe that Jesus can heal your humanity, then who can? Who's going to heal your humanity? Is it your counselor? Is it your doctor? Is it a teacher that you follow their teachings? Is it someone that you fall in love with? And if, you, if they love you just right, your perfect soulmate, they're going to heal your humanity? Are they really going to heal your humanity? Can they heal their own humanity? If they can't heal their own humanity, how are they going to heal your humanity? The Christian claim is that Jesus fully shared in our flesh and blood experience as a human, but without sin. He is whole, he is true, he is good. And so he alone is the one who can heal us. So the first answer to who is Jesus is Jesus is the true human. He's the second Adam. He's starting a new humanity and it's only in him that we can have our humanity repaired. But the second answer to who is Jesus is paradoxically, not only is Jesus the true human, but Jesus is the true God. Jesus is the true God. And when Judas arrives with his uh, band of soldiers in the garden and, uh, and Jesus asks them, whom do you seek? You notice how uh, Jesus responds there in verse 5. It says, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Now in Greek, actually, it doesn't literally say I am he. It just says ego eimi, which is I am. And again, if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll know that when Moses first met the Lord in the burning bush and Moses asked the Lord, well, what should I tell people your name is? And the Lord says, I am who I am. I am that I am. And it's God saying, he is the one who simply is. He does not depend on anyone or anything for his existence. He is the truth behind all truth. He is the reality behind all reality. And so then when Jesus comes throughout the gospel, he's been saying, ego me" over and over again. He says, I am the bread from heaven. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. 
And then we come to this final statement, just those simple words, I am. He is saying, I am the God who is the creator of heaven and earth. I'll tell you, this makes really clear who's in charge in this scene. You know, you've got this mob coming in with their swords and their torches, and they think they have authority and they're going to arrest Jesus. And, but Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay down my life of my own accord. He is, this is God's sovereign plan that is playing out in this garden. He is the one who is in control. And the big message of this passage is that the true God has become the true human. And one of my favorite descriptions of this comes from G.K. Chesterton. Uh, Chesterton wrote a, a book called The Everlasting Man, which is a, a survey of human civilization. It goes back to the caveman, and it goes all the way through kind of ancient pagan civilization and then into the age of the church and medieval uh, culture. And, and at the end of this survey of history, he has this summary chapter, this concluding chapter, and this is what he says in there. Right in the middle of all these things stands up an enormous exception. It's quite unlike anything else. It's a thing final like the trump of doom, though it's also a piece of good news or news that seems too good to be true. It is nothing less than the loud assertion that this mysterious maker of the world has visited it in person. It declares that really and even recently, or right in the middle of historic times, there did walk into the world this original invisible being about whom the thinkers make theories and the mythologists hand down myths. The man who made the world. Jesus is the man who made the world. He's the creator come to us. And so he deserves our reverence, our obedience, our gratitude, our faith, our intelligence, and above all, he deserves our love. And, you know, one of the important things about Christianity, when it says that God became a human and walked among us, it's not that that's, you know, a legend or, or some story that we can kind of draw just simply moral truths from. It is something that happened in history. And that's one thing that comes out in this passage as well. You'll notice there in verse 10 where it says, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his uh, right ear. And then there's this little parenthesis. The servant's name was Malchus. And you think, why, why did we need his name? We didn't know anyone else's name that was there. And the reason for that is because John is writing an eyewitness account. And he's saying, hey, if you want to know more about this, Malchus is still alive. He's a pretty well-known guy. He's the servant of the high priest. And, you know, we know from the other Gospels that Jesus healed his ear. So he may have become a Christian. He might be like a publicly known Christian who now says, oh, yeah, I was in the garden. I had my ear cut off, and Jesus healed it. But whether he believes or not, Jesus says, go to Jerusalem if you want to verify this. Look at the scar on his ear. There's still a mark there, and you can verify. This was not an oral tradition that was passed down for generations and, you know, like telephone that got morphed, and then all of a sudden wrote, someone wrote it down. No, this is an eyewitness account of what happened in history. And so who is Jesus? He is the true God who became the true human. He is the man who made the world, who came into history to save us. Now, just that story is enough to fill me with wonder and delight and joy that, wow, God became a man, the man who made the world, and he's, you know, incredible. But it raises another question that we 
we've started to answer, but we need to say more about. And that's our second question. We know who Jesus is, but what's wrong with us? What is wrong with us? If Jesus is God come to save us, why do we need to be saved? And again, a couple answers from this passage. The first, what's wrong with us, is that by nature we are at war with God. By nature we are at war. Humanity is at war with God. And in this scene, Jesus comes into a garden and there's this whole mob that comes to confront him. And you see the mob there in verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And I think the makeup of this mob is important because on the one hand you have Judas, who is the disciple of Jesus. So he represents the church. And then you have these soldiers, this band of soldiers who are Romans. So they represent the whole pagan Gentile world that the Roman Empire kind of encompassed. And then you have these officers who come from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So you have Jews there. And so this mob represents like all of humanity is coming into this garden. And it's dark and there's torches and there's weapons. And the picture is humanity at war with God. And this kind of hostility is how the Bible talks in other places about humanity. Colossians 1 says that by nature we are alienated from God and hostile in mind toward him. And you and I are born with a nature that is at war with God. We are proud. We do not trust God. We do not want to obey him. And even more, we consider ourselves to be God's judges. If God doesn't meet our demands, if he doesn't act the way we think he should act, we condemn him. And actually, that's what we're going to find over these next couple chapters is exactly what happens with Jesus. Here's this mob of wicked men coming to arrest Jesus and putting him on trial and then crucifying him. It should be the opposite way around. He should be putting them on trial. He's the judge. And yet there is a role reversal happening. And this is exactly what's wrong with humanity is that we have put ourselves in the place of God. And I think that this is a particularly important point in our, uh, our generation. We live in, in what's been called the, the age of authenticity. That authenticity is the, the deepest value that our generation values above all, all, all else. And so in the church, what that's often looked like is people say, well, you know, you got to be honest with God. you got to be authentic with him about the things that he, you know, he's disappointed you. And he's made you suffer. And there are things you don't like in his word. And you should be honest with him. And, and, you know, some of that honesty does come from the Psalms. The Psalms are beautifully honest. God does say we can bring our complaints to him and say, Lord, how long are you going to let this go on, this suffering that's happening in the world? And yet, almost always in the Psalms, the psalmist says, Lord, why are you doing this? And yet I will still praise you. You are the sovereign one. I'm the creature. You are the, you know, you're the potter. I am the clay. But our culture is given sovereign authority to our feelings and to the inner voice. You say, whatever my inner voice says, it must be obeyed. It must be regarded as the truth. It's happening in many younger evangelicals who are deconstructing their faith. They're putting themselves in the place of judge over God. And the Bible is saying this is, our, this is our nature that is at war with God that puts us as the judge above him. And so God is gracious to us to honestly bring our complaints, but we always do it 
in a posture of humility before him. And so first question, what's wrong with us? So we're a part of this mob that is hostile and at war with our creator. Second is that we are living under a lie. And twice in this passage, Judas is identified as the betrayer. You see in verse 2, now Judas, who betrayed him. And then again in verse middle of verse 5, it repeats as Judas, who betrayed him. And Judas has been, for the past three years, he's been walking with Jesus as one of his disciples. And clearly he did not have a sincere loyalty to Jesus as his master. And he's been living a lie. And actually, we know other stories about Judas that talk about him as living a lie. Earlier in the Gospel of John, at the beginning of this Passion Week, uh, Mary comes to Jesus and anoints him with this really expensive oil. It's the beginning of his, to prepare him for his, his burial. And uh, in that story, Judas comes up with this line and he says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He's being critical of Mary who's trying to you know, honor her Lord. And then John adds this point. He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And you see that he is a liar. And the Bible says that what's wrong with humanity is that we are by nature living under a lie. And again, this goes back to the beginning. What else was there in the garden at the beginning? There was a liar. The serpent who lied to humanity. And that's the beginning of all our misery and sin and suffering comes from that lie. And his lies turned us into betrayers of God. And so the basic message of the Bible is that Jesus is the true God come to us as the true human. And we are a people who by nature are hostile to God at war with him, judging him and living under a lie. And so that leads to our final question. How then does Jesus heal us? If that's what's wrong with us, how does Jesus heal us? Well, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, it says that Jesus came with grace and truth. Which, of course, if you have been at war with God and you've been in rebellion against him, what do you need? You need grace. You need pardon. You know, you don't, <laughs> for God's judgment to not come upon you. And then if you've been living under a lie, what do you need? You need truth. And I think both those things our culture deeply needs right now. We live in a graceless society right now. There is no mercy. There is no forgiveness. And many people also in our society, many people are talking about, we don't know what the truth is. It's impossible to know what the truth is. And, uh, and so Jesus comes to bring both. And so let me, far, uh, let me start by first uh, saying that we need the truth. And one of the things I love about this passage is that the way the truth is described is, is not information, it's not scientific studies, it's not even information you'll learn in a school. The truth comes to us as a person. And it's a person who speaks to us with power. And I, I love that verse, verse 6, where it says, When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. The revelation of who Jesus was was powerful. His enemies were knocked over. And when you meet your creator, you will not stay on your feet. It says every knee in heaven and earth will bow before Jesus and acknowledge that he is Lord. 
If the truth about Jesus was powerful in the lives of people that hated him, how much more powerful is Jesus' revelation of himself to those who love him and want to follow him? And if you want Jesus' healing in your life, you must open your heart to his word. You must read it and listen to it. In a world filled with lies, it is the word of truth that will heal you. And when you read Jesus' word, when you read the scriptures, God's truth, you will find on every page the second thing that we need to be healed. Not just we need the truth, but we need grace. And you see the grace in this passage. Look at verse 10, where it says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What is this cup that the Father has given Jesus to drink? Well, this cup is mentioned many times in the Old Testament. Let me just read to you a couple places in the Old Testament where it's mentioned. Uh, first in Psalm 75, it says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. And then again in Isaiah 51, You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. And so there are two cups in the Bible. There's the cup of wrath and there's the cup of blessing. And here the beautiful Son of God, true humanity without sin, overflowing with love. He's surrounded by the wicked of the earth with their clubs and their weapons and their torches. And he's surrounded by a betrayer, a disciple who's betrayed him. They all deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath. They are the wicked of the earth. And we deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath. But here our Lord says, this is why I came. I will drink the cup of wrath down to the dregs in your place. And that's what the cross is. And then he says, and you who've been with, at war with God, you have been living under a lie, I will give you my cup. I will drink the cup of wrath and you will drink the cup of blessing. You will drink the cup of love and acceptance and eternal life. This exchange the great exchange where he takes the cup of wrath and we take the cup of blessing, this is the grace of the Bible. This is the great message of the Bible. And this is the only thing that can heal you. And if you are here, and if you have been at war with God and you've been living under lies, God's word calls you to repent to turn from your life of sin and believe in grace and truth. Believe in Jesus, who's the true human and the true God. Believe in the man who made the world, and he will heal you. And if you belong to the Lord Jesus, then we are gathered today in his name to drink the cup of blessing. He's drank the cup of wrath. It is gone. And we come to drink the cup of blessing that he would continue to heal us. And so this is the great message of the Bible is the grace and truth that is offered in Jesus. And we receive it by faith. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so in awe of the, the story all the way from creation throughout history, the time of Israel in the Old Testament,
through uh, the day when the Lord came and himself drank the, the, the cup of wrath in our place, all the way down to our day and until the last day when he will come again to make all things right. Lord, we are amazed that this great story has all been under your sovereign hand. Uh, that Jesus, our Savior, is the Lord of heaven and earth. And Lord, we, don't, uh, we long to have his, um, his healing in our lives, his grace and his truth in our lives, to put down our weapons, to no longer be at war with you, but to be reconciled, to be at peace. And so, uh, Lord, would you uh, take these words, and as we study through the, the message of the gospel and the suffering of our Lord, would you comfort us? Teach us of your great love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.